today on Ag News Daily. That's under some kind of a quasi-sanctions program. So the question is, does that continue the way it is? Do foreign governments get tired of this and increase the sanctions, which would reduce their exports? It's possible. Welcome back to another episode of the Ag News Daily Podcast. Tanner Winterhoff here alongside Cassidy Zirkel. Welcome back, Cassidy. Thank you, Tanner. Happy to be here once again for our last day of the dynamic duo. I don't know. You've done such a great job. We might just not let Delaney back in. She might not be too upset about that. You uh, might not be too far off, but I am going to jump into only a headline. I'm not even going to dive into the article on this, but uh, biosecurity in animal ag is social distancing before it was cool. I didn't even want to read it, but that was certainly an eye-catching headline, as we have reported a lot on that avian influenza. Kind of interesting to see where things go and as we continue to protect ourselves. But the first one I wanted to jump in is the plundering. And that's the word used in this article by Russian troops. So Russia apparently, and this is tongue in cheek, has decided to increase their own grain stocks by plundering. They are raiding and taking grain from the Kherson region where uh, there has been a catastrophic shortage of vegetables and grains. This shortage obviously is caused by Western sanctions on Russia. So the decision was immediately published by the Legislative Assembly of the Kronsorsk. I'm not even going to pretend to pronounce that correctly, territory. Um, The occupiers there have devastated elevators and took the grain to occupied Crimea. Uh, Russia army has seized enterprises that cultivate around 20,000 hectares, and they are forcing farmers to plant the crop. The LPR, the Luhansk People's Republic, which is uh, the governmental arm of the Russian Federation, is stating that farmers will be promised fuel and lubricants with no charge, but their harvest will be exploited by occupiers. Farmers will only get to keep a small part of their harvest, As long as they are occupied, the LPR is threatening to confiscate agricultural material, machinery, seeds, and imprison the growers if they do not obey. So bad news uh, over there in the occupied areas of Ukraine that Russians are taking grain away. Uh, March 15th, which is a little dated now, uh, was when ships started to leave ports with Ukrainian grain and have been followed back to Russian ports. So unfortunate there, Cassidy, but that if we see any reports of Russia's grain stocks going up, it's because they have stolen the products. That is absolutely disgusting, honestly. And it makes you wonder with all of the news we have about how agriculture is being uh, affected by this invasion, what news there was in other wars that we didn't learn about in school that had to relate to agriculture. That's true. We do have a lot more mainline resources and to fall more detail into the looting of the equipment, the story that we aired, I believe it was yesterday. Uh, it was two John Deere harvesters, an S770 and an S760 with headers included John Deere tractors, uh, mainly 6195Ms, um, as well as some seed drills. But those were the equipment that John Deere rendered useless 
um, by locking those thieves out and making it so they're unable to turn that equipment on. But approximately $1.6 million in assets stolen. Yeah, now if they could only get the technology to where the tractors could drive themselves back to their right phone. <laughs> I bet it's there. <laughs> I bet it wouldn't take very much. Well, my first uh, piece of news this morning, Tanner, is also a disaster, not in relation to the war, but USDA has named 174 Texas counties disaster areas, meaning either they're in drought severe, which is eight or more weeks, drought extreme, or drought exceptional. If you look on the map, the area I live is just a little bitty green dot in a plethora of red counties that are in these disaster areas. And this article from Texas Farm Bureau said that farmers in these counties and a few other counties that are um, nearing the disaster have until December 8th to do, to apply for loans to help them out of this disaster. Well, that's good news that there is resources there to help them. It's also good news that you're in a green spot, um, but still unfortunate for our listeners and friends down in that neck of the woods. They might not be the only ones in a bad mood or with less confidence because Purdue University has released their ag economy barometer. So they have mentioned that it improved. The sentiments of farmers did improve in April, up eight points from the rating in March. However, it is still 32 points below this time last year. So producers' perspective on current conditions and future expectations did tick up, but is still below the average. The uh, professor, James Minert, states the rising prices for major economies, especially corn and soybeans, appear to be leading the change. However, we also know that there are rising costs that are tempering the excitement. So uh, you're not the only one, listeners, who might be feeling a little bit uneasy about the environment that we're in. Uh, it sounds like here, according to Purdue University, it is a widespread concern. On the note of producers' sentiment being down and just kind of being concerned and uneasy about the planting season this year, I just wanted to plug our other podcast that is in the Global Ag Network um, with Jason Meadows, Ag State of Mind. He talks a lot about mental health in agriculture, and I think that's something that farmers and ranchers should be taking care of during these hard situations. So if y'all want to check that out, it's a great resource. And he is an even better person than he is a podcast host. It's been fun to get to know Jason. A little shameless plug here for him. And the best part about his platform is it's not a group meeting. You uh, have the ability to listen to this by yourself and uh, continue to take care of what might be done in the privacy of your own radio or AirPods along those sides without judgment. For sure. I think it's a great platform that he's started and something that ranchers and farmers should all be able to do without shame to take care of their own mental health. From the New York Times, this is also on the um, university research side. So Dr. Donald Wise from the University of Minnesota has been recognized by the New York Times as a visionary, which their visionaries are people trying to change the way we live. They're recognizing Donald Wise for his work with regenerative agriculture. He and his group of 55 students in research are creating crops to have cover crop and perennial crops. 
to keep crops in the soil all year long, even under the Minnesota snow. And it looks like he's really trying to help heal and keep the soil in the upper Midwest healthy. All right. That's good because I know about our area here as we record in central Iowa and north, it's a lot more difficult to get cover crops sown and much results for growth just due to the cooler climate. So it's good to see someone pushing forward. If you want to lower your use of fertilizers, that would be a benefit because DTN is reporting, again, continued price hikes. So uh, according to uh, coming out of Omaha, DAP had an average price of uh, $1,049 per ton, MAP $1,082. That is an all-time high. Potash is $881 a ton. Anhydrous is averaging $1,534 a ton, another all-time high. UAN is uh, UAN 32 is at $730 a ton, another all-time high. So uh, unfortunate news there, but the prices for nitrogen continue to climb. Dow Jones reported the war in Ukraine is blowing a hole in global fertilizer supplies, but Nutrien has announced that they are planning to increase production to fill these deficits. The Canadian fertilizer company is ramping up its potash output to a record 15 million tons this year, and they look to increase that even further next year. So uh, we may be getting a little bit of relief coming down the pipeline, but ultimately things are higher. So Nutrien, as a company, their stock gained 5% value on Tuesday, which is not a surprise. But to put this into perspective for you, Cassidy, uh, MAP is 54% higher than those time these times last year dap is 67 28 is 81 percent 32 percent is 87 percent more expensive and urea along with potash takes the bubble here at 96 and 103 percent higher compared to last year so that's probably another little fact that ties into the temperaments of farmers and those in agriculture right now with these increased expenses related to fertilizer prices that's for sure. And I, I thank you for the um, perspective, Tanner, because I don't know much about fertilizer, but to hear an over 100% increase obviously explains to me how insane these price hikes are. I'm continuing on the crop news. Tanner, do you know what a high tunnel is for planting? I I think it's a greenhouse, if I'm remembering correctly. I, that could be a really bad term to use, but I'm when you say high tunnel, I'm thinking of a greenhouse. Okay, I think you're along the right lines. It sounds a lot like they were talking about greenhouses. So these um, researchers at the University of Illinois are researching predator insects in high tunnels to help deal with pests. Because of the semi-enclosed area, pesticides are kind of worrisome using in there. So they've started introducing some natural predator insects to help deal with their pests. And the results of their research are very promising and they're looking to continue that research throughout the summer to hopefully introduce this to other high tunnel farmers as they get their research finalized. Hey, any research that we can get done in the advantage or to the more knowledge side for agriculture, I am all in favor with that. The last piece I've got here comes uh, in regards to CRP acreage enrollment. So the USDA has stated that they accepted 2 million acres into the CRP program, but continues to see more acres leaving. So 
right now they are projecting 3.4 million acres will leave after their contract matures at the end of September this year, 2022. Most of the acres, those 2 million that were enrolled this year, 1.6 million of them were already in an existing CRP contract. So that means less than 400,000 acres are being offered new contracts for the first time. So Cassidy, these high grain prices are certainly causing landowners to reconsider what their land is being used for. There's been a lot of calls for Biden's administration to approve flexibility for farmers to uh, grow crops on CRP acres to take care of the the global shortage for crop production. But as of right now, the administration is staying firm It says that these set-aside acres will only be used for disaster programs, such as uh, grazing for cattle or haying for feedstuffs. So it sounds like landowners, Cassidy, are taking matters into their own hands by not renewing their CRP contracts. And we may see more acres in crop ground come next year. Well, another encouraging fact for landowners, at least in Texas, is that um, right now in Texas, we are voting on new constitution amendments for our state, and both of the amendments, Prop 1 and Prop 2, do have to do with landowner taxes, property taxes. So, Tanner, I may need your help as a banker to understand this a little bit better because I am not a landowner. I don't quite understand it, but it says that Prop 1 would adjust taxes paid to public schools by those 65 and older and those with disabilities to bring those down. And Prop 2 would raise homestead exemption for school property taxes from $25,000 to $40,000. Right. It should lower the tax responsibility. It'll be interesting to see what impact that has on schools. Yes. I it, And I I read into the article because one of the main asked questions in this article was, how is this going to affect schools? And it said, at least in short term, this will not have a big um, effect on schools. It also said that the average homeowner is expected to see about $176 in savings per year, which is not much, but at least helping a little bit with the hikes and everything else. Yeah, you're right. And uh, when we look at the markets today, we might need every little break that we get. Looking at the grains across the board, wheat is the only thing carrying a positive fluctuation since open. As we record, uh, May wheat is up 19 and a quarter. December wheat is up 18 cents. If you look at the hard red winter wheat, uh, we are up 31 and a half for May. And December is up at 18 as described. Corn across the board has posted uh, red numbers for the day. May contract up three and a half or down three and a half with December down four three quarters soybeans may contract down a penny with November beans being down six and a half. When we look into the livestock markets, we have a mixed bag. Live cattle's up a quarter uh, on the front month. We look at October the same and lean hogs are up a dollar and a half for May and a dollar and three quarters come the July contract. So a mixed bag across the markets. But what do you say, Cassidy? We unloaded a lot of news today. Should we get into our story for our listeners? Yes. Let's kick it over to Vince Peterson from the U.S. Wheat Association. This is an interview that Delaney was able to grab while she's in D.C. this week. And I think he'll have a lot to say about all of the different things we've been talking about on today's episode. 
As we continue to cover topics impacting global agriculture, of course, we've got the continuing situation in Russia and Ukraine and how that plays out in the U.S. marketplace, especially as you consider a large majority of the U.S.'s wheat production areas continuing to have worsening drought. Chatting today with Vince Peterson, the president for the U.S. Wheat Associates. Vince, thank you so much for joining us today. I wanted to just start out here by getting a little bit more of a background behind what the U.S. Wheat Associates does for the wheat industry. Sure. Thanks, Delia. Good to be with you today. You know, U.S. Wheat is a wheat market development, export market development company. It's owned by 17 state wheat commissions. Uh, major wheat produce, represent about 85% of the wheat produced in the United States. Our sole focus is to do uh, promote the exports of U.S. wheat in the foreign markets. So we've got offices, 14 countries, and we operate in about 100. So you're the perfect person to talk about all of the different geopolitical issues going on <laughs> when it comes to wheat production. So, you know, we continue to read, read headlines daily on the impacts of Ukraine and Russia, specifically Ukraine being able to produce wheat, get it planted, but also get it harvested and get it exported out of the country. How would you define that current landscape right now? Yeah, I think we're really in a, in a, a big conundrum right right at the moment. Clearly with the invasion and the war going on, it, it brings much of their their work not entirely to a stop, but it but it certainly severely interrupts it. So they're a big wheat producing country. They they uh, they export about ten percent of the total world trade in wheat. Not the production, but total world trade comes from the Ukraine. So what is that? What will be missing is about twenty million tons of potential wheat exports. Uh, and the question is, how much of that then is going to escape through escape be allowed to go through Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, the surrounding countries, because their ports are blocked right now. So they plant most of their wheat, so winter wheat planted in last fall and would be ready to be harvested in June, July of, of this year. So we're waiting to see. Right now, that's going to be a big problem for them. But in fact, they had a lot of wheat from last year that was not exported yet when the war began. So there's a lot of pent-up supply, a lot of pent-up anxiety in, in the area. And the world's trying to figure out how much of that's going to be available, how much will not be available, and where do we get the rest to plug the holes. And I'm going to put you on the spot here. 20 million tons that you said that they would export. Can you put that in? United States terms yeah. in bushels? Yeah, well, in bushels. Let's say that's about 850 million bushels, something like that, 900 million bushels. Uh, we're having a really bad year this year in the United States. This is one of our worst export years. We're probably going to export just a little bit more than that this year. Normally, we'd be up a little higher than that, but this year's oh, the high prices, we're probably doing less export business than we might normally do that. So so it's a comparable number. to They're, they're uh, about number five in terms of exports. U.S. is number three. So they're, they're a significant exporter, 10% of world trade from the Ukraine. So, And I want to come back to U.S. exports in a second. But the other big question that I get a lot of times from farmers into the podcast is just, what types of wheat does Ukraine produce? And because there's three, you know, right, in, in the different types, or, well, more than three, three that we focus on from a market perspective. But what type of wheat is Ukraine mostly producing, and what does that wheat go towards? Is it foodstuffs? 
That's a really great question. So they, they most of what they produce is a winter wheat. They do I probably if I said ninety percent is winter wheat. There's a little bit of spring wheat that's produced with barley and other things in the springtime. Most of that is a lo- something similar to a U.S. winter wheat, a hard red winter wheat, but it's on the lower end of the protein scale. And frankly, in most years, most of that or a great deal of that will go into animal feed markets. Not because it's particularly bad, but that lower protein carries a lower value. So you see a lot of it go into Korea, into Indonesia, Sri Lanka, surrounding countries into animal feed. So maybe half of it goes to milling purposes and the other half to animal feed, something like that. So from that perspective, really from a a commodity market watching that price action, Chicago wheat should have the most opportunity for some upside premium if that's what's being produced in Ukraine. Well, Kansas City futures would be a little more similar to the the winter, the hard red winter wheat produced in in, in Ukraine, something similar to that. Russian wheat is also similar in that more more to our hard red winter wheat than, than say the soft wheats. However, people look at Chicago and when so when, when people look at it and they trade that market, that's the first market they go to to speculate so Chicago gets gets all the attention. Yeah, I've got to admit, being from Iowa, we focus a lot on corn and soybeans. I'm trying to get better at learning all three different wheat complexes, so you'll have to bear with me. But Russia is another good one. You mentioned there just a little bit about what they produce, but what kind of impact do you expect to see this year from an export and production standpoint in Russia? So this is the one that's almost a bigger question mark than you than Ukraine to a certain degree. Ukraine, because of its of the war is kind of blocked. Russia, on the other hand, has got sanctions against it, sanctions against the banking communities, sanctions against some of the international relationships and transactions. So they're, But they export um, more than 30 million tons. And like Ukraine's 20, they're probably more like 33 million tons. They're the world's largest exporter of wheat. And they're doing right now an export cadence of about 2 million tons a month. So let's say around the equivalent of 25 million tons a year. That's under some kind of a quasi-sanctions program. So the question is, does that continue the way it is? Do foreign governments get tired of this and increase the sanctions, which would reduce their exports? It's possible. Um, so that would be a much bigger impact if that Russian supply was off the market entirely than even the Ukraine supplies. So that's a big question mark that we have to really keep our eye on. And at what point in the year do you think we'll have a good indication on what Russia is going to produce and export? Yeah, well, we're pretty close on that right now. They're, they've had a good year. They had a good planting season, a, a mild winter. They're, they're expected to have a very good crop this year. It should be something like 85, 86 million tons of wheat. We produce less than 50, put it in perspective. And they're going to probably export 30 million tons this well. Under normal circumstances, they would export 30 million tons, but they're restricting their own exports. They protect their own market, their own environment, their own prices, and they're not letting the wheat escape either right now. Vince, let's turn our attention back to the United States. I haven't looked at the latest drought monitor or crop conditions report, but wheat continuously is getting hit hard every week. How much of the country right now, wheat country I should say, is in some sort of drought risk? Well, I'm not sure if I could put a, a number on it, but you certainly you start with the winter wheat area. You start down in uh, Texas, you know, the north half of Texas, the Panhandle, Oklahoma, parts into western Kansas. All that hard red winter wheat area has been pretty severely affected by the drought. Then you flip up to the north, and clearly Montana is 
is in is in drought circumstance again, parts of North Dakota. Then if you continue up to our friendly competitors in the north, that whole western part of Canada is 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 all very dry. Manitoba in the east got some rain recently, but the rest of that's all very, very dry. So that whole North American profile is 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 pretty compromised. Now does, what does that mean in terms of pr- total production? I'm still guessing if everything would finish out the year normally, we'll have a crop somewhere similar to last year, probably. But that's certainly going to be some really bad pockets offset by some really good ones. So it just depends on where your farm is as to how badly you got hit by that. Now, there is an old kind of wives' tale, I guess, or maybe adage is the better way to put that. But if you're producing wheat in the United States, then you're all, you know you're also producing wheat in Russia and Ukraine and India and lots of other countries produce wheat. So we're always seeming to be in a, in a glut or an oversupply of wheat. Are we going to have that still this year? No, probably not this year. And In fact, that was that very, wheat is the world's largest produced crop. The people don't realize that, more than soybeans, more than corn. It's also the largest traded crop internationally, so more than those, those other two. But the last three years, two of the last three years, we've had a circumstance where we actually are producing less wheat in the world than we're consuming. It looks like we'll probably be in that circumstance again this year, probably. So the balance sheet is tighter. The balance sheet in the last three years is much tighter than it was in the five years prior to that where we were producing wheat in, in premium surplus. And so that it's changed. It's changed our outlook on prices, and I think, I think it's adding to this volatility we have going forward. So I want to circle back around finally to U.S. exports and looking at, obviously, production will drive that. But the other thing that you consider from an export perspective is at some point, if commodity prices continue to rally, buyers aren't going to come to the table because they aren't able to afford it or they can source it elsewhere for a cheaper price. Where's that price point for wheat? Yeah, we probably have seen it already this year. The U.S. wheat profile price profile is the highest in of any country in the world now there are a number of reasons for that one we came into the year with this drought year that we had last year so we had a reduced crop bad bad yield in the winter wheat area so we started out the yield with prices that were already pretty high if you remember wheat futures were already up around eight dollars last fall and even into into the beginning of this year so we already had a good solid start on it and then everything went to hell, can I say that? <laughs> After that, and and pushed us much much higher than that. So, rationing has already taken place. We're seeing it in certain classes of wheat. Spring wheat probably has lost some export markets this year. Probably even some domestic consumption because the prices are so high. Durham wheat probably the same. So we're seeing that now. We're we're there. So the question is, you know, what markets are inelastic in demand? Do they need to buy that wheat? And we're seeing that right now. Yeah, that was going to be kind of my summary question is. High prices limit exports and limit demand to some extent. But also, when you think about the drastic reduction we're going to see from Ukraine and Russia and the United States, are people going to, are, you know, trade partners going to search for an alternative solution to wheat, or are they just going to go ahead and pay those higher prices? I think to a great degree, wheat consumption is, a, is not entirely inelastic, but it is a little bit. So so the world is going to source that wheat at the best possible opportunities. Now, that's not necessarily at cheap prices. For example, uh, end users that need to make uh, products that require spring wheat are going to buy U.S. or Canadian spring wheat, and they're going to pay the price and because they need it and their consumers are paying for it and they demand that. There's no substitute for it. We have the same in some of our very soft wheats, the same. Now, 
the substitution comes in those middle protein areas. So whether they take Indian wheat or Australian wheat or um, Romanian wheat or some other source, that's where you're going to see the, the trade matrix changing and the substitution taking place. Fascinating. I feel like I'm not an expert in the wheat market, but I certainly feel like we've been able to talk about a lot of those key questions that a lot of growers have. So, Vince, I really appreciate your time today. Glad to do it, Delaney. Someone from Iowa did a great job asking about the wheat market. (laughs) Well, there you go, Cassidy. We have proof that Delaney didn't take the week off. Glad to know that we're not the only ones working hard this week while she's gone. <laughs> we kept our listeners longer than normal today. It was a busy news day. So why don't you say we let the listeners go? Let's let them go.